When our children are struggling with anxiety or managing learning disabilities, it can feel instinctual as parents and caregivers to jump in and fix it, to tell them it's fine, and to use the skills we have as adults to stop their struggles. While this might be the easy route, in the long run, it does little to teach them proper coping mechanisms and little to set them up for success. So, what can we do instead? Welcome to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the academic challenges that students struggling with anxiety face. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Alan Bratton to the show. Alan is a director of the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program at Massachusetts General Hospital, a renowned child psychologist, associate professor at Harvard University, and author of Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. Among other things, Alan has stressed the importance of parenting and caring for our children using empathy and validation. Today, Alan and I discuss her thoughts on diagnosing and managing anxiety in children, psychological testing, and more. Alan, welcome to Graduating Anxiety. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you do. So I am a child psychologist who specializes in neuropsychology, meaning that I evaluate kids for learning and attention issues and things like ADHD and dyslexia and autism spectrum. And my research has been in the areas of processing speed. I am at Massachusetts General Hospital, and I'm also associate professor at Harvard Medical School. So I do research and clinical work both. Now, uh, Alan, you've authored a few books too as well, one of which is entitled Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. And uh, in this book, you talk about kids and teens who struggle in the area of cognitive functioning called uh, what you just mentioned, processing speed. Could you just tell us a little bit about uh, what that means and uh, what that's all about? Yeah. So processing speed, as it's defined most simply, is how long it takes you to get something done in a specific period of time. And I became interested in this subject about 10 years ago or so. And I had been practicing in psychology for 10 or 15 years by that point. And I was seeing kids who were relatively weak in processing speed, meaning when we look at their test results, they're very slow or relatively slow in the ability to kind of like execute a task. It's not the ability to sort of think quickly, but it's the ability to sort of like execute something like you know what you want to write. Now you've got to get it on paper. And so there are tests that we can use to look at that. And the kids who were weak in processing speed, regardless of their diagnosis, whether they had ADHD or dyslexia or anxiety even, I found that the ones with the slower processing speed in their profile just didn't respond to different sorts of remediation. And I started to think that, well, maybe there's something with processing speed that cuts across diagnoses. So that's what got me interested in it was just sort of a hunch that's an interesting way you put it, how processing speed cuts across diagnoses. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the sort of the overlap, I guess, or the connection between processing speed and anxiety. So we do know from my own research that, and I should go back to that processing speed, let's go back 15 years or so, just used to be thought of as a kid with eight, with ADD, you know, sort of that 
non-impulsive, non-hyperactive, more inattentive subtype of ADHD, where they just weren't paying attention, couldn't get stuff done, all of that. And my research has shown that that's somewhat correct, that about 50% of our sample, 50 to 60% have ADHD. What we didn't necessarily expect to find is that there were high rates of slow processing speed in other disorders. And anxiety is one of those disorders that's very highly correlated with slower processing speed. And for the most part, it's kids with slow processing speed and anxiety that are most at risk. We don't know whether or not that's a chicken or, or an egg sort of situation, where is it the anxiety that causes somebody to be slower? You know, they're, they're, they're cautious, they're overly anxious about doing something well, so they don't engage as quickly in it. Or is it that when you have slower processing speed, when that's sort of like a neurological way of you being within the world, does that make you at risk, more at risk for anxiety? Because you're a little bit behind. You really don't, you know, you're just one step behind everybody else, which can make you anxious. Our current theory is that there's probably some kind of bi-directional uh, thing happening here that, yes, you sort of have this natural disposition that maybe anxiety and this cautiousness can bring a true slow processing speed to some people with anxiety. And that natural way of being causes you to be more anxious and it can be sort of a circular process for a lot of people with anxiety. So it sounds like you're seeing that actually the anxiety is the thing that develops first and then the lower processing speed is sort of a result in the learning process. Is that accurate or not? It's not quite. I think the difficult thing is it's a lot easier to identify anxiety at a younger age. The way we measure processing speed is with paper and pencil tests. So when I'm talking about in our research processing speed, we're using, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Wexler Intelligence Scale for children, but on that intelligence scale, a lot of people who have had large evaluations can see that there's a, a processing speed index. So when we're talking about that, we're talking about correlating these sorts of paper and pencil tasks, your ability to do something like taking your assignments down from the board, very high, those sorts of, you know, detail-oriented tasks that need to be done quickly. So that's a little bit harder to discern in kids until they're about, you know, four or five or six years of age. Anxiety, though, can often be determined fairly early in life. Like, you know that kids who are much more inhibited from a very early age have increased risks for anxiety. So we can kind of see it first but I don't really know if one comes before the other. I should also say, too, that there is another group of kids with anxiety who have very quick processing speed, and that can also be troublesome for kids who have anxiety, meaning that they are overachieving. You know, there's sort of a sweet spot for anxiety and for processing speed. Like too much anxiety is bad. Too little anxiety is also bad. Anxiety keeps us motivated. It helps us know where to focus. It helps us, you know, sort of plan ahead. It's like, oh, if I don't do this, I'm going to be really anxious about that. So if you don't have enough of that, you're not going to get things done. It's sort of the same with processing speed. Like too much makes you rush, makes you, but too little also makes you always behind. That's uh, really interesting, the correlation, the sweet spot. I love that. Do you have any theories on where anxiety is coming from for these kids or the factors that sort of contribute to the development of that condition? Well, I think that processing speed is, is 
it happens along a continuum, like a, a bell-shaped curve. And probably before, let's just say 20 years before now, 25 years before now, having slow processing speed did not necessarily place you at risk for increased anxiety because the environment was a lot slower paced. Now, kids with slow processing speed who also have anxiety, the world that we live in can fuel the pressure, which can fuel the anxiety, which can make that what could be just sort of a normal weakness. We all have strengths and weaknesses, but this normal weakness in processing speed now becomes something much larger than it was in the past because there are so many pressures on kids to get things done, so many things that we have to keep in track of, keep in mind that it's it's much more of a significant problem for kids with anxiety. You know, I, I feel like kids with slower processing speed are really kind of like the, I, I've called them the Buddhas of our society. You know, they're the thoughtful sort of people, the deep, slow thinkers who benefit from walking in the woods or just kind of hanging out in their bed and looking at the ceiling, kind of thinking about things. That can also be really good for anxiety. That's not something that really is valued in our society, and it's not something that we necessarily teach kids how to do anymore. Sorry about that. My, uh, I think my daughter is having a little episode, but I think they'll edit this up. Um, <laughs> it, it, it keeps it real. That's all right. That's, that's, we're all going through this. So your other book, uh, Straight Talk, about psychological testing for kids, does a deep dive on how psychological testing works and how parents can use it to help their kids. Could you uh, talk about this a little bit specifically? Are there different kinds of psychological testing and how can a parent or a caregiver know when their child needs psychological testing? So let me start with the first one, which is the book is about how to go about getting an evaluation for your child, how to be able to tell if the evaluation is a good one, and also to explains in detail Different chapters explain like what's a good evaluation for a child with anxiety disorder or a child with dyslexia or ADHD. What are we looking for? It also explains the tests themselves. What is a IQ test? What are the sorts of tests we use to measure reading and math and those sorts of things? I think the tipping point is how much is your child struggling? So are they meeting expectations in school? Do you feel like their reading is in line with other kids in the classroom, you sort of have a sense. And your child will give you information about that too. If they're frustrated, if they seem to be complaining, they don't like school. Also, if we're talking about a psychological issue, what you really want to be looking for is how much is that psychological issue interfering with their day-to-day functioning? How upset are they? Are they able to eat and sleep and have social relationships Or are there big changes that you've seen in your child that make you think like, we need more information about this? And there are a lot of different sorts of evaluations. The the sort of like Cadillac version of evaluations is the neuropsychological evaluation, which looks at all different aspects of functioning, memory, attention, intelligence. But there are also other sorts of smaller pieces of that evaluation Sometimes that we'll refer to as a psychological evaluation, which is really just focused on psychological functioning or an academic or psychoeducational evaluation, which will focus just on academics and, and learning. You sort of alluded to this a little bit, but what, what are the differences in um, seeing this in younger kids and in sort of teenagers? Young kids 
rarely are able to articulate that they're feeling nervous about something. So they show us they're nervous or anxious by their behaviors. So oftentimes they don't want to, what we call shift step. They don't want to go from home into school because that's making them anxious, but they can't say, I'm nervous about school. Today we're going to do such and such. And so I don't know what to do because I'm, they are not thinking that. That, that's, that's way too complex of, of a thought process for a four-year-old. Now, older kids are oftentimes better at saying that, but even so, I think that irritability is something that's oftentimes part of even young school-age kids into adolescence. But they'll oftentimes talk about anxiety as, I'm stressed, I'm so stressed, I don't know what to do. They might just give up or they might become more perfectionistic. Helen's point about how there's a sweet spot between kids that have lower processing speed and a resulting anxiety from that versus kids with a whole lot of anxiety, sort of perfectionism, um, with a sort of higher processing speed, one that almost exceeds uh, what they should be capable of. I think that's a really good point. I think those two profiles of kids are far different and require a whole different sort of set of tools to deal with, to address their problems. Getting them to that sort of sweet spot in the middle, I think should be the goal for all educators. She also brought up a really interesting point about being able to diagnose sort of younger kids. Processing speeds, I think is basically impossible because of the sort of nature of tasks that are associated with the testing. And also the inability to sort of test their executive functioning. A seven-year-old isn't gonna be expected to you know, write down their assignments in a in a in a notebook. Um, so, you know, I think diagnosing those issues becomes all the more important. Next, I'd really like to ask Alan about some of the issues that are facing kids with processing disorder and anxiety today. Kids today, in general, have much much more to deal with. And the curriculum has changed dramatically from one in which they're able to sort of ease themselves into the learning process. And uh, kindergartens used to be very much play-based, just a, a time to learn about letters and sounds and how to get along with others. So that's been taken away. And I think all kids are struggling with this. But if you're already anxious and it's already hard for you to incorporate what's going on in your world, to be asked to incorporate more and sooner in your development is going to result in increased risk for anxiety. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing more anxious kids than ever. I personally think it's in a large part because of what we're asking them to do. You know, I still get, and I was just thinking just this morning, I was supervising a case and the referral question was for a seven-year-old, he's bad in executive function skills. And I think seven-year-olds don't have executive function skills. Executive function skills are something that we learn by the time we're 25. But a seven-year-old shouldn't have to remember much of anything. So it sounds like you think it's a bit overdiagnosed, I would think, with younger kids. The research shows that, that ADHD isn't overdiagnosed, but I wonder sometimes if it's misused in these cases as a way of sort of 
maintaining the status quo for the environment. You know, when, when teachers are saying, you know, the, the seven-year-old doesn't have great executive function skills, there's something wrong with that statement that we've overdone it in a way that is not uh, enhancing kids' development. We sort of value in our culture, we value being able to do things quickly and being able to get them done correctly, like more is better. And I might see that same child at age 14 or 15, who's now super burned out, really anxious, that we want kids to be, you know, superheroes. And, you know, I, I sometimes say to parents, only the top 5% of kids can be in the top 5%. But we have this idea that all of our kids are in the top 5%. It's just not possible. And that's okay. Our society isn't built on just the top 5%. In fact, that comes with high scores and a lot of things come with downsides too. There's nothing, there's no perfect score on an IQ test. The curse of American exceptionalism, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that you, uh, that you treat these kids? So one of the things that we have found to be most effective for kids with slow processing speed is helping them learn a sense of time. And our research has shown that kids with slow processing speed don't have a very good internal clock. This is consistent with research that shows that kids with ADHD are actually very poor at time perception. And the ability to perceive time is just very similar to your ability to kind of perceive color. So what we've asked them to do for years now is time management. We've asked them to manage something they don't actually understand. And so it's very much like asking, you know, somebody to somebody who's colorblind to color coordinate a room. The nice thing about time perception is it's not a blindness. It's something that we can actually teach. And one of the ways to do that is to time things, make them aware of how time is passing, make them learn how to read an analog clock. Most kids don't do this anymore, but you can sort of see how time is passing in that way. It can also help with anxiety because if you don't have a good sense of how much time you have left, you're kind of chronically anxious or again, that chronically unanxious until everything really falls apart. And then you're like, oh my God, now I, you know, I'm, I'm losing it. So, so that's one thing. I'll say to parents, you know, have them time how long it takes to get through a day. You know, how long does it take to brush your teeth? Is it 10 minutes? Is it two minutes? How about getting to school in the morning? Those sorts of things make it kind of like a game. You don't want to overdo it either. And then the big thing that we recommend is the ability to have extended time on things like tests and assignments. I also think that inner exploration is very important. So in our in the book on processing speed, we call it the three A's of processing speed. So acceptance, accommodation, and advocating. And I think this cuts across and, and far beyond just processing speed, but accepting who we are. Like, this is who I am. It takes me longer than it takes the average kid in my class. That's me. And I don't even like to use the word limitations because in some ways it, it can be limiting factors and in other ways it can be really wonderful things. Like I was saying, the right amount of anxiety is a is your superpower. So being able to accept, okay, I am on the anxious side. So how do I need my environment to accommodate me? And then how do I advocate for that? 
Now, uh, you mentioned there the, the kids with sort of slower processing speeds and, and result of anxiety with that, and then the kids with higher processing speeds and, and different forms of anxiety with that. What do the treatments look like? How are they different for those two types of kids? Well, if we're really talking about treating the anxiety itself, what really one of the, the best tools for both of these kids is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that really first looks at what are the cognitions that underlie these sorts of behaviors. So it's great to know if somebody is sort of a fast or slow processor because the therapist can use that to know, okay, what are, what are you thinking in this situation? Where's your head going? When you're in a test situation, for example, and you feel like you're not going to be able to finish it in time, what do you do? What are you thinking? And then to be able to say, okay, we know that it's probably going to take you a little bit longer than most other kids in your class. And how do we best use that extra time that we advocated for and you received? How do we use that time? And so for a child who's more perfectionistic, those sorts of cognitive behavioral techniques will be much more about attacking those perfectionistic tendencies. So when I'm anxious, I tend to go into overdrive, for example, about being making sure that I'm doing everything correctly which is slowing me down further, which is putting me further and further behind. To have a child articulate that and to then say, how do I let go of that? And sometimes for kids who are perfectionistic, it might just be, the therapy might really be being able to sit with imperfection and know what that's kind of like and how that feels. And so that can be an important skill for kids to learn. What about with slower processing kids, what would the sort of treatment look like with a kid with slower processing? If a slower processor is feeling anxious, so one of the things to do is to address that through sort of executive function coaching or tutoring. Sometimes it's for the parents. I should also say too, which I did not mention before, that parents play a role in this too. We have to be able to look at what's our processing speed like? How does this interact with my child in the home environment? Am I fast and my child is slower? Does this cause more anxiety in our relationship? Or are we both sort of slower processors? And is this bogging us down so we're always anxious? But in the therapy environment, the therapist is really going to help the child develop coping skills that will help make their life more seamless. And sometimes that would be identifying where where they are the slowest or where things are bogging down for them. Traditionally, you've sort of stressed the value of empathizing with your children. Um, I wonder if you could sort of expand on the importance of uh, empathy. Empathy is probably the, the most important quality we have anywhere, especially in today's world. I think for parents, in terms of their kids, being able to just restate what your child is feeling and getting an understanding of what it is they're struggling with helps them become more empathic themselves. Especially if you have a child who's having trouble with transitions, for example. One of the best ways to help your child with transitions is to say that to them. You know, it looks like you're really struggling with making it from home to school or school to home. How does that feel like for you? What's tough about that? How do you think we can change this? What do you think would make you feel better? Being able to figure out how to change things really comes best from a place of shared perspective. 
And I would say, personally, I, I sort of struggle with editing out the critical voice too. And as a parent, um, sort of editing out the, you know, you should do this a little bit differently. Or if you have any sort of hint of that, at least in my relationship with my daughter in particular, um, their defense mechanisms go up and it's like they're almost resistant to any attempts at empathy. If you really think about it, if you're really in the space of empathy, that is sort of edited out as part of it. If we're really just sort of in that space, we're not, we're getting in their shoes. So we're not necessarily looking from a distance where it's sort of like, you should do this. And, and we know oftentimes what the right answer is, but sharing their frustration and saying to them, what's the right answer here? Kids know what the right answer is. And there's been a lot of studies that have looked at this. Kids have the ability to know the right answer but don't always have the ability to use that skill. So it's kind of like being able to identify the alphabet, but not necessarily being able to apply it yet for reading. Same goes with decision-making. You're looking at this, you're like, you know this, you know what the right answer is. They know it too, if it's someone else. It's never helpful for somebody to say, you should have done it this way. Ellen brought up a really good piece of advice, I think, about teaching kids about time, especially with an analog clock. I found that a really helpful sort of pointer in dealing with my own daughter, too, teaching her the feeling of time, right? How long does it take to get to school? Um, morning versus afternoon, even. I think having those sort of concrete tactics as a parent really gives you something to glom onto and invest your sort of effort in. Also, she talked about something that we've discussed frequently here on this podcast, which is the, the importance of empathy. I think empathy is important for all kids, right? I mean, we want to be seen and understood and solve our problems sort of collaboratively. I think it's all the more important with kids that maybe are feeling a little bit different than their peers. So that empathy piece almost becomes that much more important for those kids. What do you think the future of education looks like for students with uh, anxiety? And uh, how has the global pandemic sort of changed that? It's really hard for me to know exactly how the global pandemic has changed for kids with anxiety. At first, and I'm just going to talk about my own clinical practice, we don't really have any data on this yet. Uh, my lab at Mass General and uh, Harvard Medical School, we're, we're looking into this. We, we want to follow kids because at first, way back in March and April, I was seeing kids with anxiety report less anxiety. They were not stressed. Of course, you know, when this happened, everybody sort of mobilized to help kids with anxiety. And, and I was seeing them like, this is great. Like I can just sort of hang out, especially kids with slow processing speed. It's like, hey, you know, school's only like two hours a day now and I can, I can handle this. I think that might be changing a little bit. I think that kids are starting to feel lonely. I think there are bigger issues at play in terms of identity and, you know, the, the, the goal of childhood and adolescence is to get away from the family system. And when that's not happening, that can also lead to feelings of anxiety. I'm not sure, though. I think there's a combination and I, it may not be a one size fits all. And I can't say perfectly that all kids are more anxious now because of COVID, we just don't know. It would be nice to know which kids are more at risk. And I, like I said, our studies are looking at that. Are there certain risk factors? If you already have anxiety before COVID, 
you know, less at risk for increased anxiety or more. And it could be that already dealing with anxiety on a daily basis makes you more resilient when really something is, you know, anxiety provoking. Because a lot of the things that kids get anxious about aren't necessarily real events. So sometimes when an anxious person is presented in a real event, like, well, yeah, I know about this. Now everybody else is feeling like me. I feel kind of, I, you know, I feel a whole lot better about this. In the future of education, I would like to think that at some point we would incorporate some of the things that we're learning now about kids and how they're able to manage. And first, I really thought and was hopeful that school would take it down a notch, that we would not be so driven, competitive, you know, like all those AP classes and all, you know, everything leads to this perfect college on the hill. And I was hoping that maybe this would just show that, you know, kids, there are really only a few things that kids need to learn, especially at the younger age. They need to learn how to read. They need to learn how to compute and use math so that they can do things in life. But other than that, a lot of those other things they learn are choices that are part of who they're going to be as an adult. And not every child needs to learn all kinds of things about physics and chemistry that they're never going to know or need to know when they're you know learning all this at 15, which is completely stressing them out. So maybe more clarity of, of what is it that kids need and how do we make our academic environment more geared to the particular child how do you think we're doing as parents and caregivers and uh, what more could we be doing to uh, support our kids? So uh, one of the things that I think we need to do as parents, for those of you who are parenting younger kids, my kids are older, is to empathize with yourself and take stock of how much we have lost. I think we are glossing over the fact that we every day is a new set of losses. Like it is just little by little by little. It's not just, oh, last year's graduation or Aunt Susie's wedding or your bar mitzvah. It is every day is just a little something. And to sort of like just be able to feel that and know that your child is experiencing that too, probably unconsciously. So I think being good to ourselves right now is better than, than a checklist of like, oh, we should be doing this, this, and this. My wife and, actually, and I actually say to ourselves often or remind each other basically that we're not parenting right now, that we're pandemic parenting. That has to be a very frequent reminder because of, uh, that was it's a very interesting way you put it, you lose something every day. If there's uh, one thing that you wanted students to take away from this discussion, uh, what would that be? I think use this time to learn something about yourself. What is it that is working for you? It's a really great time to learn about executive functions. So, for instance, pre-pandemic, kids didn't have free time to fill. Figure out what you want to do with this time that we have. And this is a great time to sort of Think about yourself as a learner. What do you really love? What makes you happy? How do we infuse that into our lives? Thank you so much, Alan. That was really, really interesting. I found myself jotting down a lot of notes, actually. (laughs) Anyways, thank you very much for your time. I I really appreciate it. And um, I thought that was terrific. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Throughout my conversation with Alan, here are a couple of things that stood out to me. 
One point that I uh, thought that Alan made that was really interesting was about diagnosing, particularly, I guess, younger kids with anxiety versus eating disorders or sleeping disorders. She mentioned it was sort of a longer term thing versus an acute trauma or transition. But I think the key point there, too, was that it involves other symptoms. So in addition to sort of not being able to sleep and having the dark circles under their eyes, acting out or having fits or struggling to read or struggling to function um, socially, I think if you see a sort of multiplicity of symptoms cropping up, that is when you know that maybe it's time to get some testing or have a, have a sort of intervention psychologically. So another really interesting point that Alan made was about how expectations on a societal level often exceed what a kid is capable of. She mentioned the case of a seven-year-old being expected to have skills involving sort of executive function, right? So being able to write down their assignments and to schedule time for themselves to complete homework assignments, for example. Love it or hate it, I mean, we kind of mentioned the fact that, well, teachers, you know, schools, parents, like everyone is sort of increasingly having that set of expectations and it hasn't been slowed by the pandemic. You know, the question is, well, what do we do when we have this sort of wave of expectations on a societal level? I think as parents, we can acknowledge the fact that society has these sort of expectations for the kids and sort of talk them through their feelings about it because they're going to feel that conflict between I'm not capable of this, but society expects this of me. Thanks for listening to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that helps caregivers of anxious learners overcome obstacles to find academic success and build continuously happy lives. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. See you next time.